1: So, to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get
2: 30, to get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, maybe get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month.
1: Sold! give it a try at mintmobile.com switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full turns at mintmobile.com.
3: John Copenhaver and Al Warren. Third on K. Why is FM Los Angeles.
0: One hundred two point three FM
1: Riverside
3: and one hundred five oh AM Palm Springs.
4: You are back in the house of mystery. So now I see that uh, this week's going to be an interesting week. And um, now today we've got um, a man who's written a book that looks like the title of Something About Me. Now the book is called A (laughs) Disturbing Nature. (laughs) Now I've been called that a lot. Uh, So Mr. Brian Laveau, thank you for being here. Hey, Alan. It's great to be on the show. Hopefully that's... (laughs) You still say that at the end of the show, right? uh, um, So, Brian, that brings me to, um, this is your first book, I believe, right? It is, 33 Years in the Making. Wow. Well, seeing that, that in itself said something. So what was it that got you to actually decide to publish this? 33 Years in the Making, something you've been doing somewhere along the lines. Why would you all of a sudden do it now?
5: Oh, uh, that's a good question. Uh, the, the actual story came to me in a dream in 1989 while I was in graduate school. And uh, unfortunately, like most people, I had to make money. So in the interim, the, the 30-something years in between, I was uh, running a business and uh, making enough money to be able to retire young enough to sit down and finally write the novel.
4: That's interesting. But, you know, but I still say that there's something that, that drives a person. Like this is something that's been with you for a long time. Oh, but usually there's an, um, you know, some, some sort of uh, an event or something that initiates you actually putting it out for everyone to read.
5: Um, in truth, uh, just the fact that I had retired, sold off the business, and I finally had the time. I always wanted to write it, and I would add to the skeleton the outline and then characters during the cost of all those years, but I finally had the time to sit down. And even with that, it took four and a half years. To write from that point. It's a story that I had to tell. I mean, it it was so disturbing when I woke up from that dream in 1989. It was a collection of seminal moments in my life that kind of came together. When I woke up, I was sweating and it was really scary. And uh, I just had to lay it down on paper. I got a few pages out and started jotting notes and uh, just always was looking for the day that I could sit down and uh, make a novel. Again, so now you
4: say it, it was in a dream but yet it's moments of your life. So this is really kind of based on
5: true events. Uh, absolutely. Uh, a lot of what's in there, Not, I mean, obviously, I'm not a serial killer. My mother thinks so now, though, after she read the book. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, no, I'm not a serial killer. We'll, we'll discount that right from the beginning. Uh, no, it was a, a bunch of different uh, little snippets of things that had occurred that didn't make sense when I was younger, and suddenly in that dream it kind of made sense. And, you know, as I tried to explore that, uh, I realized just how dark those thoughts were as I was jotting them down. And the general themes for the book about the man versus monster uh, and also issues of post-World War II racism in the, in the Jim Crow law period and then after civil rights legislation uh, post-Jim Crow period. So, you know, in putting all that down, I had to be an older person to write this novel. I, I could not, not have written this when I was 20. I had to be... Uh, fifty to sit down and write this novel
4: so did you figure out what the dream was about for yourself
5: uh, I did and and I think a lot of those were personal things for me they involve family and and friends and uh, schools that I had gone to and people that I had met and I really don't you know, although a lot of what's happening in the in the novel has to do with my interpretation of those uh, the actual people involved or I leave out uh, they were. Uh, an influence as opposed to being, you know, the actual characters themselves.
4: Well, so um, at the end of the novel, but so, so you've been through this now, It now it's, now it's finished. It's done. Do you think it's changed you this whole
5: process? <laughs> Without question. Yeah, I, 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 it was grueling. I will tell you honestly, it was grueling when you sit down. I know that if you're writing a, a, a horror novel, uh, If you're writing a a police procedural and it's removed from you, I I think you can step away a little easier. But when you are constantly evaluating the monster that resides inside you so that you can get a better understanding of the monsters that have been uh, in our society and continue to be, uh, I would really have to take a big step back at times. I was working on a, a novella that was much lighter At the same time, it was it was hard because I'll give you an example. Uh, We all remember when we were a kid and there was always that kid that that, uh, you know, would steal your lunch money, unless you were the bully. Then then I think you had a different set of circumstances. But the kid that wanted to steal your lunch money or the kid that would just pick on you, the bully. And uh, as a kid, you'd have those thoughts about, God, I, I wish this kid would die so that I don't have to deal with this anymore. And you don't mean it. You wouldn't kill the kid. But that's about as dark as you can get in terms of the way that you think. So, in thinking back through my my thought patterns and processes over time, uh, and the fact that we just have things float through our head that we don't even know why we thought that in that instant, uh, trying to capture those and really pull that out, it was it was uh, it was an experience for four and a half years. It definitely was.
2: Now, as you were writing this, um, you, you know, you're dealing with a lot of dark subject matter um did you have to step away and f- do something to decompress uh in between writing chapters or scenes or anything like that
5: yeah no question i i love to travel and i've been very lucky to travel a ton and so every time i'm stressed i travel i go somewhere on the planet usually try to pick remote places that other people wouldn't go to and they do play into settings uh, for some other work, some other books that we're working on. I have a team here, and so we have a series of stories that are laid out. And so I travel to these locations, and it takes my mind off of the, the current uh, thing that I'm writing as I'm jotting down notes uh, for those scenes. And that's, that, for me, that's absolutely the best way to decompress and kind of step away. And then when I come back, I'm immersed. I typically write about 3,500 words a day. So even for a long novel, it can be written. I think I wrote this novel in original draft in 13 weeks.
4: So do you feel like um, you have a monster inside that you need to deal with, or maybe a maniac?
5: Well, I think we all have uh, our own demons. I think in in truth, and that's the premise we begin with, that we're all messed up. There's a different word that we use here at Tangent, but we're all messed up, and we spend our entire life trying to hide it from everybody else. Uh, we all have you know, the wrong thoughts, we judge, we we uh, harbor fears that, that, that uh, manifest into uh, beliefs that, you know, may not be conventional. And we wouldn't want our, no one would want their head cut open and laid on display for everybody else to see, because we would see the hate and the prejudice that resides inside us. We're just not immune to it. And we all judge. And again, that's a big theme for the book is, when we look at the man and the monster, and, and you'll have trouble telling which is which as you go through the novel, but as we look at the man and the monster, we, we see that line ever thinning because when do the people that judge actually themselves become the monster? So that, that leads me to
4: let's talk about your, your two main characters then. like who Who are they and how did you
5: come up with them? Well, they represent the two extremes of my personality, to be honest with you. Uh, Mo is moving up from Virginia uh, under some uh, mysterious circumstances. He's been banished. He's 24 years old, but an accident when he was young leaves him with mental capacity of an 11-year-old, ne- nearly a 12-year-old. And uh, Francis Palmer is an FBI chief investigator, a celebrity. He's solved many of the biggest mass murderer cases because before 1980, uh, they were not called serial killers. They were called mass murderers. Uh, He's solved many of the biggest ones uh, to that point, including The Boston Strangler, Cape Cod Casanova, among many others. And you'll see them in the book, these references to true life. And everything in the book is historically accurate. All I've done is drop these characters in, all of the characters as fictional characters, into a realistic setting, down to the weather, even the weather as we go through this two-month period. So you have Palmer coming back from Seattle where he's been working on the Ted Bundy case. He's frustrated. And the beast inside him is frustrated. He cannot get the monster out of himself. And so he has a beast that's able to communicate with the monsters and and to understand them as he works on these, on these uh, investigations. So you have two very different, you have the very intellectual genius, the FBI agent, who is the heroic figure. And then you have this very questionable young man coming up from Virginia and uh, girls start going missing and bodies start being discovered shortly after that uh, within weeks of, of this young man coming up to Rhode Island.
4: How long did it take for them to
5: catch you? <laughs> How long did it take for them to catch me? Well, it, it, it's now 58 years and I'm, I'm still free, so they haven't caught me yet. <laughs> <haven't> caught <laughs> uh, well, that's good. The book, mean... the book plays out over the course of about nine weeks. It's a little over two months and uh, it starts in August of 1975. The Red Sox are marching to the World Series. At that point, they're they're working their way towards the pennant. And uh, this drama takes hold of this young man. He moves into the area, he's always been a baseball fan, and he becomes a very quick fan of the Red Sox because it's a means for him to communicate with the young folks on the college campus that he's now living with, and also with his coworkers. And uh, he loves it. He loves his independence. For the first time, he's not being sheltered by his father and his grandmother, and he enjoys that that freedom. Uh, But at the same time, this other story starts growing, Uh, and this other story is that there's a serial killer on the loose in uh, central Rhode Island and southeastern Massachusetts, and that's taking more and more of the headlines. And uh, this young man gets swept up in the investigation, ultimately becoming a uh, major suspect.
4: So you incorporated where you grew up in in a lot of this. Um, Why do that?
5: I think you write what you know, and I think the geography was easier for me to be authentic in the layout from 1975. I was also 11 years old in 1975, and so Moe's character really represents the youthful innocence that we, we all try to maintain. Uh, and whereas Palmer's character represents that jaded cynicism that we get as we get older. And you'll see that very clearly in the novel, and they think very differently. Those are really the two extremes of the way that I uh, process information. And I thought it would be interesting to watch how those converge over time. Uh, but to use Rhode Island, I, I taught at Bryant uh, University. Now, it was called Bryant College when I taught there in the 1990s for a few years. I knew the campus very well. I went back and visited it a couple of times. Uh, when you grow up in Fall River, your nearest access big city is Providence. So I spent a lot of time uh, in Providence and across Fall River in that area, Lincoln Park. So you'll all of those locations that you'll see uh, where the story plays out are locations that I remember extremely well from being young uh, up to and including the Lizzie Borden House. And I stayed there a couple of times as well.
4: Hmm. So there's quite an influence there for you. Um what, what else do you think has influenced you in this book to come oh, out
5: the way it was? You know, in truth, uh, Lizzie Borden was kind of a kickstarter for me. When I was 11 in fifth grade, uh, my class went to the Fall River Historical Society. And the Fall, Fall River Historical Society, a lot of it is dedicated to the Lizzie Borden story. And so that was my first introduction to who Lizzie Borden was. And from that, uh, I, I became more interested in why people would kill and so, you know, in the news, it seemed like every day when you were young then, you were hearing about a different serial killer that was in the news. That was the peak from 75 to 85 was the peak of serial killers. And so everybody was on high alert. And if you were that age, your parents were telling you, watch out for less of the molester and so forth. We didn't really have a serial killer of that level in New England, but everybody was on high alert. And so all of this gathered together in addition to, it was probably only a year after that, I, I got a chance to see on PBS, The World at War. Which you know I, I'm sure you guys have seen if you haven't, or well, you must, but it's a seminal work on World War two with with uh, Lawrence Olivier as the uh, narrator. It, it's wonderful, and so I started looking at the distinctions between the desperate leaders of the of World War II and these serial killers and what the distinctions between them were, and it just drove a lifetime of of uh, you know watching documentaries, anything that I can get my hands on around serial killers and and mass murderers and, uh, you know, war in general, but particularly World War II. And so those themes all run through the novel.
2: Did you have to do a lot of research, or were you able to just rely on, on memory of, of uh, things that you watched uh, and uh, the, the places that you, that you went when you were here in New England?
5: Well, my memory's not so great, so <laughs> I, was, I was doing tons of research. And again, when you're taking four and a half years to sit down and write a novel, uh, you know a lot of that is spent doing research. So I would say, and again, there's a team of us at Tangent. I have a group, I've, and I wanted them to learn to edit so that I could write books a, a little faster, move the process along, starting up Tangent as a publishing uh, company. And so they were able to do some of the research for me, particularly in terms of weather, outcomes in the, in the games, stuff like that. Uh, but when it came down to doing the, the uh, research for the serial killers and for World War II, uh, that I was doing myself, I would know generally exactly what happened, uh but or when it happens and and pretty much the general aspects of it, but then I would have to research to get into the nitty gritty to to be able to apply it, and so that that was uh, in and of itself a, a great deal of effort
4: have you Have you been able to identify exactly what it is you were looking for when you
5: search out serial killers? Yeah, I think that if you look at what we have difficulty connecting with, right? It's it's always hard for us. We we say we'll watch the news, and they'll say, Why oh, he seemed like such a great guy." Jeffrey Dahmer was the perfect neighbor. He was quiet, always said hi, right? No issue. That Ted Bundy was the most likable guy you've ever met, right? He was he was communal. He was communicative. Uh, commun- communicative. So he was just this great guy, right? To everybody else, except for the thirty six woman that he killed right? So you you wonder, what is that switch? What is it that makes that person different than me? I don't believe I'm a serial killer. I don't have the impulses or any triggers that would make me a serial killer. But what might have happened in my upbringing or in certain events that may have occurred in my life, uh, uh, losing family members, things like that? What could have happened that would have swung me the other way? I think it's a question we all wonder from time to time. I believe you go to the extreme. It, the story isn't interesting if you take it in shades of gray most of the time, but if you take it to the dark edge and the far light, uh, then you have something that's pretty compelling this, to try and find what that middle ground is.
4: Yeah, and I think it's probably a step further, too, actually, because there are plenty of people that have had just as traumatic you know, events in their life happen that are not killers.
5: No. That is entirely true, and, and there's a there's a parallel in the story around uh, the treatment of uh, individuals with disabilities uh, aligned against the treatment of minorities in the 1960s. Uh, as we separate World War post World War II, into two periods, pre the Kennedy assassination and civil rights legislation, and then post. And uh, I'm really trying to use the character of Mo who has a, a uh, intellectual handicap or disability, more appropriately, um, trying to parallel that with uh, treatment of uh, people of color uh, in the story. So it's, it's a, it is really a post-World War II work. And I used the serial killer model because it allowed me to take the extreme situation. I think it, it created more contrast and is a little more shocking.
4: Yeah, it, it, it's interesting, too, because the, the peak of the killers, you know, the, like you were saying, in the you know, later 70s, 80s, and, and all the atmosphere of that, um, a lot of them were kids of war survivors, so to speak. So there's probably a good um, connection there.
5: Yeah, we, you know, it, it all uh, manages to work its way together. And I, what I like is that the, the, the critical reviewers are picking up on it. I can see that they're picking up on on the post-World War II themes and what America looked like in those years. And, of course, I only lived half of it. I lived the half, and I was very young. I lived the half after the Kennedy assassination and civil rights legislation. But I know what I experienced in the 1970s and into the 1980s. And so, you know, I'm trying to write that piece, that uh, that part of what I experienced. It's my interpretation of post-World War II America, the period of innocence, and then the period after the the end of The innocence in America.
4: Yeah, it's an interesting time. Um, do you have um, some sort of, uh, at, the, at the end of the book, like someone picks this up and reads it, of course they're going to learn about the characters and they're going to see all the things you, you have them go through and, and what's going on in America, but is there something that you have underlying that you want them to pick up?
5: Yeah, at the end of the day, the, the two primary themes are the, the themes around uh, racism in America and uh, assignment of guilt associated with racism, the heredity of racism, and the hypocrisy of privilege in our society, the fact that we came back from World War II, we felt very good about ourselves and protecting democracy. Uh, but at the same time, we didn't change a lot of the things that we had been doing prior to the war. Things went back to the way they were. Uh, Treatment of individuals in our society certainly were impacted by that. And uh, in addition, when we take a look at uh, individuals with disabilities, uh, money was directed away from those individuals. And there is some logic around the fact that uh, serial killers begin to arise in 1963, four and 5 at the same time that funding is being cut to fight the war on poverty in in, uh, Johnson's uh, um, great society. So, you know, we look at One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which is a a wonderful, I'm sure everybody's seen the movie, the book is fantastic, uh, and it takes a look at particularly that issue without delving deeply into it. Uh, I wanted to to use it as a parallel to treatment of minorities in our society and what the second order effects are, the prices that we pay uh, for for the mistakes that we make, the things that we overlook. We did not allocate the same level of effort to people with disabilities and, and uh, handicapped individuals that we did to uh, those that were in urban ghettos and so forth in the 1960s. And we, we paid the price for it through the 70s and the 80s.
4: Do you think it's getting better now?
5: Uh, absolutely. Uh, are there still people who have uh, uh, mental uh, disabilities, um, uh, intellectual disabilities? Absolutely. Are there people on the street that are potentially very dangerous? Sure, we have mass murderers today, people that need uh, a great deal of psychological help. Uh, so And it's very, very hard to identify which ones are going to be uh, uh, dangerous and which ones are uh, merely a danger to themselves, right? That's that's one of the issues that we have in our society. But I do think it's definitely getting better. Mental awareness is much higher today, psychological awareness. You've got a third of the population, I believe is what it is, under the age of 30 that now seek uh, uh, attention, uh, help. So uh, that's a good sign that we're aware that, uh, maybe sometimes the way that we think is does not conform to uh, maybe a healthy perspective. So, yes, I think things have definitely improved. I think looking at the 70s and 80s, that was a, a very different time for us at that time. And we were still wrestling with, you know, a great deal of issues around uh, minorities in our society, either due to sexual differences or physical differences or or religious differences. And I think a lot of those have have. The, the issue is not gone. They exist still today. We know that. But I think we're on the right path. Yeah, disco ended.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, we wrestled with disco, right? I mean, come on.
5: <laughs> yeah. Wow. Thankfully, I was so young that I missed the disco era because it is kind of a joke today, isn't it?
4: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, actually, you know, I wasn't I, – I remember it, but you see, I was still too young to go out. I, my older siblings were going to the discos, you know.
5: That's yeah, crazy. I think you and I were in the same boat. Then I was just yeah. a, you know a teenager, young teenager, and I wasn't going out and enjoying the the uh, dance scene at <laughs> no. that time. But, but <laughs> roller,
4: roller roller disco and all.
5: <laughs> in a sense, the way. I did go roller skating, but well, and and, the there, and there was music on. So I guess short yeah. of the, short of the mirror ball, I, I guess I was part of the scene. Oh, see now we're getting the real truth. <laughs> 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 you wear a stretch outfit and wearing dis-
4: and roller skating and disco okay well wow. no um it i think it 's a gr- i think it's a great idea, a great book, great great sort of thing um, i How do you deal with or do you even think about it um, you know' because we were around in the in the sixties definitely in the seventies and even Dave came along in the seventies and yeah. uh, the, the, we we <laughs> talked a lot differently we we behaved differently um and now a lot of it's not so acceptable. There's a whole political correctness that's um, kind of permeated through our, our day-to-day society. But when you're writing about an era where people are just, um, they behaved in that different light, do you worry about how you present them to a younger generation?
5: Yeah. Yeah, actually, that was a it was a big concern, both in terms of the language, the dialogue, and also in terms of the themes. So, with respect to the dialogue specifically, uh, had to be careful for certain certain language which would be considered offensive today. Had to make sure that that the usage of key words uh, were limited to only uh, those those points in the book where it was absolutely essential. Uh, what I did is I hired uh, an outside uh, contractor firm that did all of the sensitivity reviews. So we have. Uh, you know, I don't want to give anything away, but we have characters of, of uh, pretty much everything that you can possibly imagine. We have pedophiles in the book, and this, this will play out through the, through the series. These characters, over the course of four books, will keep reoccurring, even if they have passed, uh, because it all ties together. And uh, so I wanted to make certain that in the, the way that they spoke in the dialogue, that I wasn't doing anything that was offensive. Uh, I wanted to make certain that my use of of phrases and terms was spot on. It only occurred when it was absolutely necessary, and and then you know you worry about that today. You worry about using certain words today that people, regardless of the trying to remember that it's nineteen seventy five, uh, they, they they just will not be get o- be able to get over that hurdle. Maybe because they didn't live at that time. When you know, I, I went back and I showed my staff videos of the busing crisis in Boston in 74 and 75. They were shocked at how many times the N-word was used in the interviews. They were shocked. They were like, is that really? I said, that's exactly the way it was. That was not going to get cut out on air. And so we have to be better than that. We have to make sure that that same shock exists in the book, but not in that way, right? So yeah, it it was a very big concern, and and, again, it added to the amount of time that it took to write the book. But we have not had anyone say anything negative at all uh, about the either the research in the book, the authenticity of the way it's presented, or the dialogue.
4: Yeah, I think maybe having an advantage of fictional characters. It's really tough when you're actually presenting um, real people with their dialogue because they do they said things that were not appropriate, but it was acceptable back then. So I think that's where the difficulty comes. So you have that advantage of being able to take your fictional characters and kind of regulate them a little bit.
5: Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. I mean, I had to, for one uh, secondary character, it had to be very clear that there were going to be costs. Uh, He was going to be held accountable for his racist behavior and beliefs. And so that had to be woven into the story, but again, even though they're fictional characters, I wanted to be sensitive to, you know, where we are today, and I, I, I don't, I think we were able to accomplish it with just as much shock in the same way that there's no bombs exploding, no body pots flying all over the place in the book. Uh, I think we were able to maintain that level of shock uh, in the book and do so in a way that I, I think people will, will appreciate.
4: Yeah, I think it's a good thing. You know, I, I was just watching Turner Classic movies on the weekend, and, boy, there were some movies I was watching. And, uh, wow, the, the you, you, I think you forget on how easy it was for them to use, like, the N-word and that language yeah. in the 60s. It was just so common throughout. It's just um, – Or if you're
5: Quentin Tarantino now, right?
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a whole different alley here. You know. I, uh, uh, yeah. So – you, you have, this is going to be kind of a series for you. You've kind of got this this already, you were saying, four books and stuff. So is your process when you're doing a series like this um, to outline? And and I say this in the fact of, do you kind of already know what's going to happen at the end of the series and kind of know where you're going to be and where the characters are going to go? It's just you write your way to it, or is this totally as it goes?
5: Well, the process that we use here is called writing in the dark. And I call it that because there's really three elements to it. One is that we deal with very grave themes. So it's dark subject matter. And then the second part of it is I really have to go to the deepest, darkest well inside me to be able to create these characters that I have nothing in common with. I have to find elements of the way that I think to be able to make them authentic. And then thirdly, Uh, I I really don't know exactly where we're going with each character. And because of that, I have to have a good idea what the highway, what the road work looks like. So i got to know where it's headed. We laid out all four novels up front. So the major uh, outcomes uh, and, and plot elements were laid out. But in the writing process, it's just so surprising how you get to know a character so well that uh, they want to take you someplace different. I know that sounds weird, and I, I don't know that anybody that's ever, you know, not sat down and written would understand that. I think most people would, particularly if you're writing suspense, mystery, horror. It's amazing how you create these characters, you have these views about the way that they think, and you're kind of imposing yourself on them. And then ultimately, if you really open yourself up and make yourself vulnerable, they start imposing themselves on you, and and they really change uh, the way the story moves a little bit. Maybe they're going on the side roads, even though it's got to come back to the highway, they're going off on the side roads. it's It's such a fun experience. I wouldn't have understood that before writing the first novel.
2: Yeah, I find that that happens to me too, that they just kind of have you know a mind of their own <laughs> they just take you where they want to go sometimes instead of uh, where you've planned out. no, it's for, it's
5: uh... it's really remarkable. So even as i'm I'm in the process now of, of just having finished the the draft the secondary draft, on the second novel. And it is even more twisted than the first one. It really is. It brings back uh, all the characters pretty much. Uh, Some of them are reserved for books three and four, but every character in the first book comes back somewhere in two, three, and four. And, uh, you know, in bringing them back, it was just so, it was like finding old friends after so long. It really was. Some of them I'm just so amused by, and then others, you know, you have that dread. It's like, oh, my God, where are we going now? What are you going to do now? And so it's 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 a lot of fun. But in finishing that draft, I, I you know, I really had an appreciation the second time around, which, how much more fun it was the second time than it was the first.
2: Well, can you hear them? Get, when, is that how you uh, <laughs> kind of create the dialogue? I was waiting for this question. You know, all there's, there's, there's always
5: uh, – actually, this is Dave, right? Dave, there's always yes. voices in my head. Yeah, okay. So, That's uh, what so I, we're getting at I, I'm just one of those people that either has too much money or too much time. So uh, and so yeah, there there are always the voice of my I, I fall asleep at night and they're telling me what they want to do tomorrow. <laughs> and and all I want to do is take the kids to the park. So it's yep. it's uh, <laughs> it's an interesting <laughs> experience. But I but I, I do truly enjoy it. I'm so glad I wish I'd have done it when I was young. I, I didn't need the other things that I did in my life. I thought I did. I thought I needed to make good money and, and then retire and write. But honestly, I would have switched it today. I would tell anybody out there that, that honestly believes that writing is their calling, do it as quickly as possible. Don't don't use excuses or money mm. uh, to hold you back from doing that. If you have a great story to tell, tell it.
4: Yeah, but do you ever, like, um, wake up in the morning and um, find mud on your feet and maybe a shovel <laughs> by the bed and,
5: you know? You know, I'm, I'm always hot enough <laughs> to shower before I get in bed because my wife would suspect something. But she has pointed out the mud stains and, yeah. and, even more importantly, the blood stains. Sometimes right. I'll have on my cuffs or whatnot. So I've, I've gotten better at it. I, I throw the clothes away on the way home. Yeah, well, that's good. I mean, I just speech, thought, you know. But what do you do when you, when you see a, a strange dent on your car? Oh, <laughs> then I get really pissed because that wasn't part of the process. Yeah. I, I didn't expect <laughs> that to incur any damage myself.
4: Well, you know, but it, we talk to a lot of people in fiction, nonfiction, all sorts of people that, that write and create. And um, it's, it's always certain fictional writers that'll say they hear the voices and they get told and, they, and these people are, you know, they're, they talk about um, characters like they're real people. Now, with that in mind, have you ever thought about where you get that character from? Like, where did, where does that come from? Because it, in essence, it's coming from you. It's your mind uh, that creates this person, this character, this being that comes to life, and you create stories with them. I say with them because you're both doing it. It sounds like it's a back and forth. But do you ever think about where
5: that comes from within you? Uh, you know, I'm going to say honestly no, because... Uh, I'll give you an example, something that everyone does, and I'm sure you guys have done it. Uh, you're walking down the street, and I could say you see a pretty girl walking on the, uh, walking on the other side of the road, or you see a homeless per- person walking on the other side of the road. Your mm-hmm. mind immediately wonders, I wonder what that person's story is, right? And then you start creating the person's story, right? You, everyone yeah. does it. You, you you know it. When I say this, I'm sure every person listening is going, Oh, yeah, I've yeah, done yeah, yeah, but if I can
4: interrupt here, but when I see that, that that pretty girl walking down the road. I'm looking at it. I'm thinking, not a positive thing. I'm thinking, well, look at the injections in that face. <laughs> look at the fake lips. Look at the fake. Hey, hey, you know, you
5: know, you know what? You just answered my question for me. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm telling you. When I'm looking at people, I'm not looking at the surface of what I see. Whether they're good looking or they're less attractive or they've been worn down by years of struggle and and or they're homeless or whatever, I'm seeing. Most of the times, wondering what it is that that made them that way, and and if they've been fortunate to have certain gifts, what if they what if they've been misfortunate enough to have in terms of negative gifts? So that we all know the girl that's gorgeous but has no personality, right? And so as you're doing these contrasts, as as you're just looking at people, I do it all the time, nonstop. I traveled to Geneva just to walk the streets near near Lake Geneva, just to watch the people, just literally just to watch them. I don't even go on the rides when I go to Disneyland. I just watch everybody walking by. And I look at the different body styles and body motions, the way they behave, the way they talk, do they use their hands. And in doing that, you start to kind of create these characters with each one. And then I would take that back and I would build a character around that individual. Because particularly for Palmer, it's funny because both characters, both main characters really see everybody as attributes. They see them as a pair of lips, or a hairstyle or even a number a seat assignment on a plane. Because in, in Palmer's case, the investigator, uh, he has lost the ability to be in touch with humanity. The beast inside has taken over. And so he only sees everything as a piece of a puzzle. And on Lumen's side, he kind of sees everything, for example, as there's a scene where he's walking through a house, and it's a house that was built by robber barons. Well, he doesn't know what a robber baron is, so he thinks it's a house built by thieves. He legitimately, that's what he thinks. And so it's always in the way they picture things. Well, I I can't write that way without sitting down and just watching people behave. The way they talk with their hands, the way that they dress themselves. And in that, I create a character, what I believe maybe that person may be like. It's a story, right? I'm creating a story for the person. And that person then becomes a character in the book.
4: Yeah, I I do the same. But... And I have totally lost touch with humanity. In fact, <laughs> I can't stand them. Um, but I, you know, when I'm writing, I pick a city I haven't been to. It's usually quite large and I go to it and I'll stay in a, a nice place and I'll just hang out for the whole time that I'm writing uh, because I feel very um, comfortable in a large, large crowd city where nobody knows me. So that in itself speaks about me. But I think that when we see these characters on the road, you know, the girl with the fake boobs and all that, and we start putting it together, isn't that really, aren't we really kind of talking about ourselves? Isn't it something that we're bringing out about ourselves?
2: Oh,
5: there's there's no question, right? But the way that we assign uh, uh, the individual, the character that we're creating, is really a reflection back on us. It's the way that we see the world. And so... You have to be exposed to as much as possible in order to really get in touch with all of the different things that you're thinking, right, to be able to create those. Otherwise, I couldn't have 60 characters in a novel that are very unique. Each one is very unique, and yet each one of them in some way is a reflection of me, right, either in terms of my fears, in terms of my hopes, what I wished I would be as opposed to what I really am, right, so I, I think you're absolutely right there. Every one of them reflects certain things about our attitude, our personality, and, and our motivations.
4: So in reality, what you're doing is you're giving us a, a biography. Um, and so where does the courage come for you to, to, to let your feelings come out on a page? And uh, in today's world where everybody can say something about it to you online, Um, is is, is there something special about that? Is there something that you
5: do to protect yourself? Um, No. I I think I'm completely vulnerable in the writing. I I suspect that people that I've known very well for a very long time will recognize things in the characters about me, maybe about situations, relationships in the past. Uh, I think people will see that. I, I just don't have a problem doing that. It's funny that there are people that have no problem exposing their physical body and, and they make themselves vulnerable by taking off their clothes or whatever else. And that's something I could never do. But on the other hand, I, I believe there's a lot to be learned if we all were willing to share, uh, you know, the, what we think, how we think that we learn so much from that. And again, I think it's why over the last 30 years, Uh, We've come a long way as a society to trying to understand those people that we would have had uh, prejudices or biases against in the past, that we've begun to start to understand that. Uh, And we talk about, uh, um, you know, the issues with people, homophobia, an example, right? And that would have been mocked and laughed at 50 years ago. And yet today it's kind of a deep-seated understanding, that it not only exists, but it creates issues in our society. So I think it's perfectly fine. I don't find myself any more abnormal than anyone else. I just think that I'm making the time and taking the extra effort to really explore uh, why I am the way I am. And I'm not perfect, and I make mistakes, and I have thoughts that I wish I didn't have, uh, but I'm not going to hurt anybody. Uh, I would rather that everybody learns that it's okay to have that beast inside them. It's better sometimes to acknowledge that we have a beast inside us that can think certain things and behave certain ways because then we can better contain it and control it.
4: Yeah, you know, I work with a bunch of beasts. (laughs) (laughs) I understand
5: that uh, totally because it's it's terrible. My life is terrible. The difference between a beast and a monster Very simply, the difference between a beast and a monster is that we believe we can tame the beast, and we do not believe that about the monster. Hmm.
4: Mm-hmm. What do you think of the, the the current? I don't know. I mean, popularity of things like murder and crime and serial killers and 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 the young generation. Sending their cock shots to everybody <laughs> yeah. I mean it's a totally I mean because you and I we grew up in a time, and even Dave come along we we didn't have that like we we didn't have the phones and the internet, the access, and we weren't flashing ourselves to everybody <laughs> online and doing all this stuff and then so it, 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 but does that say something about the current generation's mindset?
5: you know I think it's easy to say that when we get to the end of an empire, so one would argue that maybe the American empire is is starting its death struggle, right? Uh, but I, I don't know that I necessarily buy it from the social perspective because, you know, if we look all the way back to the Greek empire, the Roman empire, uh, there were things that were going on in terms of uh, how slaves effectively that were living uh, with families and and what they had to do. And if you go to to uh, Italy or Greece, you can go see where all the pro- the houses of, of, of uh, ill repute, the, the, the whorehouses and so forth, were located. Uh, and they were on every street corner. When you go to Vesuvius and you look at the, the city down below, uh, they were on every street corner. So this whole concept of this it's new that we have all this, yes, it's much easier for everybody to... Uh, you know, get the visualization today. But the wealthy, whether they were kings or even popes in the past, they would have their harems, right? So I I think that it's just become more equal today. It's not limited to just the wealthy. And so we get worried about that as a society. But I also think the other side of it is we become somewhat desensitized to it. Like how many times can you watch, for me, how many times can I watch Spider-Man? Like, holy cow, Mm. (laughs) How many iterations of Batman have I seen since I was a kid? Now, sometimes they come up with something really good where you get inside the minds of the Joker, like the movie several years ago. That was intriguing. Uh, But for the most part, if you're just remaking the same movie like Superman, uh, how many times do I have to see it? How many times do I have to see A Star is Born? But but the point is we become desensitized. Violence today, watching someone's head be ripped off and so forth, that's not really going to move an audience anymore. They don't jump in shock like they would have when we watched Halloween. In 1978, right? That was a very different experience then. And young people don't really understand that. They're looking for the next level of shock. I fear that probably the thing that happens one day is there isn't going to be anything left for shock value. And so uh, maybe we start returning back to nuance and innuendo to provoke us as opposed to relying on just the visual sense and hearing, having to be shocked uh, by explosions and body parts being strewn around and so forth. That's, that's kind of my gut. Could you imagine at when we were
4: maybe 10 in the 1970s and we saw a movie called John Wick? <laughs> 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 what it would have been like? That would have been
5: disturbingly crazy in the mid-70s to see something like that. Yeah, it, it absolutely would have. And, I mean, just think of Rocky Horror Picture Show and its reception yeah. in a sense, right? But but you're right, seeing something. I, I think of a few years after that, Blade Runner. That was yeah. It was mind-blowing yeah. when it came out, right? It was it was really, like, so far ahead at the time. So I, I don't know how I would have taken it at 10 years old in 1974, uh, seeing John Wick or so many others uh, that are out there. But it, it certainly would have changed the course, and we'd be n number of years ahead today to see what the impact would be. But yeah. I, I'm with you there. They They have their place. Those movies have their place. I understand the appeal. I've watched them. Through the years, they have they have their appeal. But it, when it becomes a chase to become more and more graphic in every possible sense, at what point is it? Uh, are you just sober to it? You, you've seen that before. Like you have to amp it up, and how much further can you amp it? I don't know. I don't know the answer. Maybe it's maybe it never ends. I don't know.
4: Yeah. So so what 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 can readers expect for the rest of the series? Where is it going to go?
5: Well, I think for the rest of the series, they're going uh, to continue to work on the arcs. So the first book, the first half of the first book really opens up a whole series of mysteries and a series of small arcs and, and broader arcs. In the, in the later books, which become increasingly twisted, uh, you have different serial killers that are being hunted. And at the same time, all the serial killers that are famous at that time or operating at that time are introduced, woven into the book in much the same way that Ted Bundy and Juan Corona, The Boston Strangler, The Cape Cod Casanova, and others are woven into this first novel because the book is taking you from 1975, the series from 1975 through 1980 when it ends. And so you just have a very ripe time for all of the, the serial killer activity that's happening. There'll be three different serial killers in the first three novels. And then the fourth novel really wraps everything up in a way that will really, really surprise people. Uh, I think each book will very much surprise people. No one has guessed the ending of this novel, this first one. No one has yet. I promise you, no one has come back and said they guessed it. And it is a really thorough and enjoyable ride when you get to the, the crime drama as he comes off of Ted Bundy, and then he moves on to the Pastoral Predator. It's a real thrill ride. The second book is a, is a real thrill ride. The third one does get a little more gory. Um, I'll, I'll say that in a, a head, it does really get somewhat gory. It's a very different type of serial killer. And then the fourth one really brings all of that together. It, it's. I think people are really going to enjoy it. Well, oh, great. Now, so
4: how do people get a hold of you? Do, you? do you run a website? Do you, uh, do you like to be contacted on social media? Do you hang out on uh, uh, Tinder, Grindr, anything
5: like that? Well, I most well, not, not so much Grindr. <laughs> <laughs> at, least, at, at least not recently. You know, if I wanted to be an author, I had to had to stop that real quick. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I, I prefer to be called for dinner. Anybody offering to make me dinner, I'm there in a hot beat. Uh, but outside of that, I have my website. So you can go to brianlebeau.com. Very simple. Um, and then I also am on Instagram as Brian Lebeau Rider. Facebook is you can search for Brian Lebeau Rider. And, uh, you know, to be honest with you, People know I'm pretty open about everything so I'm, I'm very easy about giving my email out so people can uh, contact me directly. I love answering questions. I, I love that people are asking questions now. We've got a whole series of book clubs that have already uh, asked if I would be willing to go and I will share the symbolism, the themes, everything about the novels that people want to know I, I really want to get the message out there about what this is truly about and and the fact that yes, on the surface you get this wonderful, uh, mystery and, 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 uh, 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 investigation. But underneath all of that, you have these very, very dark themes that we really need to explore as a society.
4: How is it for you or how do you handle, um, social media and, and the ability of everyone to, everyone and their dog can, can say things about you or your books or your writing or anything you want. Do you sort of focus on reviews and stuff like that? Or you stay away from it?
5: Um, no, I mean, I think I'd be lying. When you write your first novel, you do anything the first time and, and you do something creative. Uh, yeah, you're going to, you're going to, that first one's going to hurt. I think at this point now, we, we've been, uh, I'll, that's a better question for me three months from now. Right now, we only have a couple of uh, um, less than stellar reviews out of the 30 or 40 that have come in. So most of them are five stars. So I'm not experiencing like this. I'm more excited by the fact that it's being received better than I could have anticipated. Uh, But, you know, the first one came in, the very first one, the person didn't read the book, they even acknowledged that, gave a bad review, and that one kind of stuck with me for a little bit because there was nothing coming up behind it to say, but we enjoyed the book. You really, I I have the perspective, I think rightly now, if I reach one reader, and and to that I already have, I already know that I've reached uh, some readers and critical reviewers and so forth, uh, you reach one, that's one more than you had before you started and that's a significant event in addition i was in business for a long time as a ceo 13 and a half years as a ceo company was large and every decision i made made some people happy and alienated others over the course of 13 and a half years i pissed everyone off at some point and you get a thick skin you just you just realize that you're doing what's best for the company i wrote the book that i wanted to write uh, i i am very proud of it and you're right. I was able to explore myself and to make myself vulnerable and learn a lot. And so if people love it, it's great. If some don't like it, some hate it, it's okay with me. Well, we, we encourage people to <laughs> give, <laughs> give, give them all the bad just, just Just go for it. No. I, I mean, you can always just hunt them down and kill them. I know? was just going to say, you know, if there's too many bad reviews, you don't know how that would play out on me. Yeah,
4: yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, always, I this is what I do. I always find out everything I can about them, and then I make sure that they're taken care of.
5: Well, I know where their social media is, and I I know how <laughs> to find where they live.
4: That's right, and uh, <laughs> I'm telling you, just no, no wasting time here. How was COVID? Was COVID hard on you for writing and for the, like, because that's always interesting because to me it sounds like you're kind of an emotional person, like not, not like a wreck crying all the time, but I mean, you sound like you're in touch and you're trying to find out things about yourself and other people and all this stuff. But with that going on, when you're surrounded by, you know, the COVID and you got the maskers, the anti-maskers, you got truckers, you got everything going on. That's a lot of stress anxiety and stuff. Um, Did that sort of get in the way of how you were able to perform writing wise?
5: um, You know, initially uh, I was bothered by COVID because we were on our way to go talk to several agents who were down selecting between agents and the goal was to go through a big box publisher. COVID COVID completely changed that. Uh, In the end with with that and then of course Black Lives Matter and Black Lives Matter is coming right after it. Uh, the information that I received from New York being shut down was I was looking at probably four years from being able to see a book hit the street. Well, I'm not a kid, so I don't have a lot of time to waste. And it completely changed. I went and got myself one of the better publishers to learn from and then also a PR firm and decided to do it myself because I was fortunate enough to have the resources. I know that most independent Writers don't have that, but I, I did have the resources to try and make a, take a shot at it. The COVID itself, uh, we got very fortunate, knock on wood, it did not impact my immediate family. It did impact some of my uh, siblings and their families, but everybody came out of it okay. I think the biggest nuisance for me, and I think for any of us that are a little bit older, boy, we hate that mask. We hate wearing masks on planes and everything else. It's just hard to breathe your own breath. I mean, I, I might be able to deal with an awful lot of what, what goes around in my head, but I don't want to breathe my own breath all, all <laughs> day. It just gave me headaches. So I found myself avoiding going out a lot just because I didn't want to wear the mask, which left me more time to write.
3: Yeah. Well,
5: there you go. You know, brush your teeth. Uh, <laughs> you know, I would if I could find my toothbrush. Yeah. <laughs> but if, but I, I lost that damn thing when I moved to California like 13 years ago. Yeah. The monster took it. Yep. Well,
4: well it's certainly been uh, very interesting. I've uh, really enjoyed talking to you and uh, certainly uh, recommend the book, everyone. This is a great, great idea, great book. going to be a good series. Um, of course, it's called A Disturbing Nature, and uh, it's written by our
2: guest,
5: Brian LeBeau. Thank you for being here. Well, I, I greatly appreciate it. I had a great time. I hope you guys had some fun.
2: Absolutely. Thanks, Brian tired of wasting
3: time trying to decide what to watch on your streaming service go to our website and look for the martino movie reviews you've been listening to the house of mystery radio show to find out more about our guests hosts or shows go to www.houseofmystery.com show's over for now
2: was it as good for you as it was for me yeah